So this evening I'm going to consider what a secular wisdom might look like. So let's start by um, offering a, a very rough guideline definition. I'd suggest that a secular wisdom, whether we call it Panya or whether we call it Sophia in Greek, is primarily concerned about how to live wisely in this world rather than seeking to gain knowledge or insight into what lies behind appearances that we call truth or reality. And in English, that would be truth with a capital T and reality with a capital R. And this approach would lead to letting go of metaphysics and metaphysical beliefs altogether and adopting what we might consider as a pragmatic and therapeutic scepticism. Now, when I use the word scepticism or sceptical or sceptic, put out of your minds the conventional meaning of that word. As in the sentence, oh, you're so sceptical. This scepticism is a, a philosophy that goes back to the ancient Greeks and it's been a current in Western thought right up to today and arguably it lies behind the whole attitude to scientific research is to constantly inquire and question. Skepsis in Greek means to investigate. As for metaphysics, a word that is often banded around, I think we can describe this quite simply as any view or opinion about what is not evident to us. So this would be, for example, believing in the existence of God. We don't know God or see God or have any direct knowledge of God, but we believe, or theists believe, that God is somehow at the root or the ground or the origin that lies behind the apparent world of what we see, hear, smell, taste and touch and so on. But it's also a metaphysical belief to um, accept the theory of the Big Bang, which we know just as little about experientially as we do God. It's a theory, explains things, but it's outside of our experience altogether. And then if we look to Buddhism and we hear claims like all conditioned things are impermanent or craving is the origin of suffering or the ultimate nature of reality is emptiness. These are all metaphysical beliefs. In other words, they are propositions that we might regard as true, but they're not things that we know directly and evidently for ourselves. You know, all conditioned things are impermanent is a, is a Buddhist dogma. And when, for example, we hold a diamond in our hand, it doesn't look remotely impermanent. And yet, as Buddhists, we believe that it is. In other words, the reality of the diamond is that it's impermanent, even though it appears to be permanent. And perhaps closer to home, we have the sense, at least I have the sense, that me, Stephen, um, doesn't change. 
that the same person who's speaking to you now was also the little boy who played with his toys at the age of five. As far as Stephen's concerned, that hasn't budged. It feels as though it's exactly the same person. Hasn't changed. But as Buddhists, or as even neuroscientists, we'd say, ah, but that's just an appearance, it's uh, not the reality. So, a thoroughgoing uh, scepticism is leads you basically to, uh, to, to view yourself and the world by introducing a split between what appears, what's evident through the senses, through the mind, and what lies behind the scenes, what, what we call reality or truth. Now this way of looking at the world, whether or not we are philosophers or theologians, is so deeply ingrained that it makes it quite difficult to really grasp what this scepticism means and what it implies. It's difficult to understand this. In some ways, we are default ontologists. That we have a kind of instinctive sense that there is a reality, a true self, a truth in some sense, that is out of our sight, out of our reach, out of our grasp, but it must be there for everything else to be somehow supported or held up in some way or given meaning and legitimacy. Now, let's first look at um, the roots of scepticism as we find in Greek philosophy. First, remember that for the Greeks, philosophy was a practice, what they called ascesis, where we get the word ascetic, asceticism. But ascesis means much the same word as the Pali word seka, which means training or discipline. Philosophy was a practice for the Greeks, and it was a practice that had as its goal healing. The philosopher was compared to a doctor, a therapist, a physician, much in the same way as the Buddha was regarded as a physician, someone who healed the suffering of our existential condition. And of the ancient Greek schools, we find the school of scepticism that starts with a man called Pyrrho, Pyrrho of Elis. He lived in the 4th century BC. He was uh, initially a painter, and he later studied with a philosopher, a philosopher called Anaxarchus, who we probably haven't heard of. But together with Anaxarchus, um, Pyrrho travelled with Alexander the Great to India. And in the Greek records, it uh, says that he associated with the naked philosophers of India, the gymnosophists, which was what the Greeks broadly called the sadhus and the monks and the philosophers they met uh, when they arrived in India. And again, according to the records, particularly that of a man called Diogenes Laetius, Pyrrho is said to have practiced philosophy in a most noble way, introducing that form of it which consists in not knowing and the suspension of judgment. Now very little survives of Pyrrho's own words. He didn't write anything, 
like Socrates, like the Buddha. He taught orally to his students. So we only have some fragments of things that were written down by people who studied with him. His main pupil was a man called Timon. And this is how Timon summarizes Pyrrho's teaching. He says, whoever wants to be happy should consider three questions. How are things by nature? What attitude should we have toward them? And what will result from having such an attitude? Pyrrho, according to Timon, said that things are equally undefinable unmeasurable and unpin-downable. That's my paraphrase. Therefore, neither are sensations, in other words, what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch, nor are opinions tell us truths or falsehoods. So we should not put the slightest trust in them, in our senses, in our opinions, but we should be without judgment, without preference, and unwavering, saying about each thing that it no more is than is not, or both is and is not, or neither is nor is not. And the result for those who practice this attitude will first be speechlessness and then untroubledness, ataraxia, sometimes translated as peace, but the word literally means untroubled. And it seems quite close in many ways to the Buddhist <coughs> equanimity or even nirvana. So this is a practice. It's a practice of not um, regarding anything we can directly experience uh, or any opinion that we can hold about that as giving us any uh, claim to the nature of what is real or true or the nature of being or the nature of God. For Pyrrho, all we have available to us are appearances, the apparent, evident world. To make a claim, a truth claim about something which is not evident, which is hidden, is uh, to indulge in metaphysics and is, for Pyrrho, simply unjustified. He says, or one of his followers says, that appearance extends everywhere. So even if we, as scientists, for example, you know, get down to understanding the atomic and subatomic um, nature of matter, that is still in the realm of appearance. It's just another layer of appearance. It's what's apparent to us, what's evident to us. It doesn't say anything about anything else that might lie behind, beyond, or in the inner essence of those things. Pyrrha therefore practiced what's called epoche, uh, the suspension of judgment putting aside our beliefs, our opinions, our prejudices, our biases, our views, and learning to simply um, encounter our own experience, both our inner experience, our sensory experience, um, without any preconceived beliefs or notions about their nature. But he didn't say that reality was unknowable, that we cannot know reality. Because that would be just another opinion, another view, another judgment. 
He practiced skepsis. He practiced an ongoing, open-ended inquiry, founded in the sense of, I don't know. I don't know what this really is. All I can experience is what it appears to be. In other words, one keeps inquiring, one keeps investigating, one uh, encourages a, a curiosity, a puzzlement, a perplexity. Um, perhaps one day we will reach the end of this road. But for the time being, all we can do, in a sense, is wonder and inquire and puzzle and be perplexed. And so this not knowing, this suspension of judgment, is the flip side of a capacity to ask questions. When we ask a question, when we say, you know, who am I, for example, we are implicitly acknowledging, I don't know who I am. This not knowing is the underside of curiosity and wonder, a sense of mystery, puzzlement, perhaps. So this kind of approach to life is not in the business of providing us with the consolation of certainty or belief. We're always in a state of puzzlement and questioning. It's a way of life that releases us from the hold of opinions and views into a condition of afatos, speechlessness. And I take this to mean a kind of a jaw-dropping sense of wonder, being awestruck by what's happening. And that stopping of thought, that stopping of opinion and views, is what leads to the condition of an untroubled mind. We're no longer preoccupied with what is the nature of myself or of things, we simply settle into a wordless wonderment. So where did Pirro get these ideas? <coughs> the obvious place to begin in asking this question is to look at his own teacher, the man Anaxarchus, with whom he travelled to India. And Anaxarchus belonged to the lineage of a philosopher called Democritus. Democritus came from the very uh, eastern part of the Greek world, from a place called Abdera, uh, in, in the country that in those days was called Thrace, or Thraci, I don't know how you pronounce it. And he's known as the laughing philosopher, Democritus. And Democritus too, according, again, to the Greek records, also is believed to have gone to India, where he too is said to have studied with naked sages. But if Democritus had gone to India, as the records suggest, he would have been there during the lifetime of the Buddha himself. When he came back from his travels. He lived in a most humble manner, the text says. He cut himself off, he cut off for himself a small portion of the garden that surrounded his house, in which there was a small cottage, and he shut himself up in it. He used to practice himself in testing perceptions in various ways. Sometimes it says he would retire to solitary places, spending time in graveyards. And he visited Athens, but he despised the glory that was given to philosophers there 
and did not desire to be known. He met Socrates, but he says, Socrates did not know who he was. Again, Democritus was a, a practical philosopher, and the goal of his uh, praxis was the attainment of joy, of human flourishing, eudaimonia, and ataraxia, untroubledness. But he was also the first materialist. He was the first Greek thinker to develop an atomic theory of the universe. For Democritus, reality consisted of <coughs> atoms and void. In other words, ultimate atomic particles that moved around in an empty space. And the whole of reality was built up upon these atomic movements. Again, not hugely different from the modern scientific view. But this meant that he cast doubt on the reliability of our senses or our reason, since neither was capable of apprehending the atoms themselves. And a later philosopher called Sextus Empiricus quotes him by saying of Democritus, his teaching was, by convention sweet, by convention bitter, by convention hot, by convention cold, by convention colour. In reality, atoms and void. Now, Anaxicus didn't study with Democritus himself. He studied with one of his students, a man called Metrodorus, about whom we know very little. But Metrodorus was the one who developed the, the sceptical side of Democritian philosophy. It's said that he abolished the criterion of truth by claiming that we know nothing nor do we even know just that, that we know nothing. And this goes much further than the famous statement of Socrates, which was, I know one thing, that I know nothing. Metrodorus didn't even know that he knew nothing. And this, again, is not just an intellectual game these people actually sought to live their lives from this perspective. So you have another saying attributed to Metrodorus that says, a single ear of wheat in a large field is as strange as a single world in infinite space. So whether we're looking at the, the tiniest thing, a grain of wheat, or whether we're casting our eyes out into the cosmos, we are equally overcome with a sense of how strange, how wondrous, how inexplicable that is. Now some of us, in listening to these teachers within the Greek uh, sceptical tradition, have probably remarked, wait a minute, this sounds a lot like Buddhism. This sounds a lot like what we've been doing on this retreat, in a way. Just being present with what is apparent, noticing it, suspending judgment about what it is, or what I like, or what I dislike, having some narrative, some story about it seeking to come into a contemplative intimacy with the world as it rises, stays around for a while, shifts, changes, disappears, and seeking to rest in an increasingly speechless space, not to get caught up in our words or concepts, but just to come to rest <coughs> in the sheer wonder of life itself and it's therein 
that we begin to experience moments of peace, of stillness, of ataraxia. So this led someone like uh, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, to say, although a Greek, Pyrrho was a Buddhist, even a Buddha. So I'm now going to go back to the earliest layer of Buddhist teaching and share with you passages that seem to be speaking in a very similar way. We'll start with the, um, the Atakavaga, the chapter of eight, it's called. It's part of the Sutta Nipata, which is regarded both by traditional Buddhists as well as modern scholars as the earliest layer within the Pali Canon. Um, I'm not going to go into the reasons as to why they say that, but they, for good reasons, take these texts to be probably the earliest that there are. And they're very similar in their style, in their language, in their whole approach. But in a way that somehow contrasts with many of the suttas, the discourses we get in the better known collections like the middle length discourses and so on. So I'll just give you some examples of that. This is um, the Buddha speaking. He says, I do not say this is true. That's what fools say to each other. They make out their own way to be true and therefore regard their opponents as fools. So again, the Buddha's not comfortable with even using this word truth in this sense at all. And I'll read you out a sequence of verses now that comes from one of, which is section five of the Atakavaga. The Buddha, or whoever is the author of this text, is talking about a practitioner who lives in this way in which they have let go of the notion of holding on to truth. He lets go of one position without taking another. He's not defined by what he knows. Nor does he join a dissenting faction. He assumes no view at all. He's not lured into the blind alleys of it is and it is not, this world and the next. For he lacks those commitments that make people ponder and seize hold of doctrines. There's no hint of contrivance in his perception of views words and ideas. Who can judge the priest who holds no views? By what standard can you measure him? He doesn't elaborate, nor does he flatter. He has not taken up any doctrines. You cannot gauge this priest by his rules. He has gone beyond with nothing to fall back on. This is remarkably similar to the sceptical approach. Sceptical, remember again in this sense of living your life as a constant process of questioning, of wondering, of inquiring, of letting go of views and opinions. But not as an intellectual exercise, as a contemplative discipline and experience. This is a passage that comes from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses on the Buddha. It's a dialogue between 
a man called Vachagota and the Buddha. Vachagota is a wandering ascetic. He often appears in dialogue with the Buddha. And on this occasion, he comes up to the Buddha and he says, Mr. Gautama, is there a self? And the Buddha remains silent. Mr. Gautama, is there not a self? The Buddha remains silent. Vachagota got up and went away. Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, said, why didn't you say anything? And the Buddha said, if I had said there is a self, that would have been siding with eternalists, people who believe that the self exists in some real way, not just a process, but it's something deep and real behind the veil of appearances. And if I had said there is not a self, that would have been siding with the nihilists, people who deny that there is any meaning or value or consequence of your actions. It's all just random, chaotic stuff. So we see here in this passage the Buddha is not denying the existence of the self, which is often the Buddhist position. He's refusing to make a statement one way or the other. Because if he were to affirm the self, that would open up the tendency to then fix and hold the self as something real. If he were to deny the self, this would open up the opposite extreme, that of nihilism. So this too, I think, points very clearly to um, a refusal to get caught up in having an opinion or a view about oneself, the self, me. This is explained or articulated even more clearly in a text called the Kachanagota Sutta, the discourse to Kachanagota, again about whom we don't know much. Kachanagota, at this occasion anyway, was not yet a follower of the Buddha, but he came to him with the question, what do you mean by samaditi, complete view or complete vision, usually translated as right view? the first step of the Eightfold Path. What do you mean by that? What, what does that mean to have a complete view or vision? This is the Buddha's answer. He says, this world, Kachana, depends on a duality. The duality of it is and it is not. And these are exactly the same words as Vachagota used. Is there a self? Atita. Is there not a self? Nitata. Same language. Is, is not. So for the Buddha, the world is locked into the, du the, the dualities of language. And the fundamental one being is and is not. But one who sees the arising of the world as it happens, with complete understanding, there is no idea of it is not in regard to the world. In other words, if you pay attention to the actual processes of life itself, and you witness, let's say, a flower or a plant or a thought uh, coming into being, arising, it's not possible at that moment to entertain the idea that it doesn't exist, that it is not. And one who sees the ceasing of the world as it happens with complete understanding, there is no idea of it is in regard to the world. In other words, when you observe the processes of life as they go out of existence, it's impossible any longer to hold on to the idea that this thing is, in some real sense. 
it passes, it rises, and in that process, you cannot draw lines which mark out where it began, where it ended. It's a seamless, unbroken continuum. And again, a good way to make this a little bit more concrete is imagine a planting the seed of a, of a flower, let's say. And the f- seed is in the ground, it's watered, it gets um, warmth, it then germinates and then it produces a little sprout above the soil and the sprout then grows into a seedling and the seedling grows into a plant and then the plant produces flowers or fruits or whatever it is and then at some point it dies and it then <coughs> disappears. Although it's true to say that there is a seed that gave rise to a plant or a fruit, let's say, or a flower, that may be conceptually correct, but in terms of your actual moment-to-moment observation and experience of that process, you can't actually separate the seed from the flower. The seed and the sprout and the seedling, all of this continues in an unbroken, unfolding way, in which language is a very poor uh, uh, device to actually capture this process as it takes place. You can't say is, you can't say is not, you just have what we would now call process unfolding, uh, unpouring out, disappearing. And even in that language, it's still locked into the grammar of our thinking, our speaking, and it fails in a, in a very real way to represent what is actually taking place in experience, in the world, in nature, in our own bodies in our own minds. And the Buddha concludes by saying, everything is kachana, that is one dead end to believe in existence. Nothing is kachana, that's another dead end. Without veering towards either of these dead ends, the true person teaches the Dhamma by the middle or the middle way. Better said, the middle way in this sense is not the middle way between asceticism and sensory indulgence. It's a middle way that avoids the dead ends of is and is not, being and non-being, these fundamental binary categories of language. And again, it's not just an intellectual theory, it's the foundation for a way of living your life in this world. So what does the Buddha depend upon if he refuses to make any kind of claims about things being or not being? He doesn't believe anything, he's just a kind of person with no views or opinions at all. He would never vote, he would never make any choices. Exactly the same criticisms that Pyrrho's contemporaries in Greece uh, levelled at Pyrrho. If you live like this, then you you won't avoid dangers, you won't have any desire for anything. And the Buddha's answer to this question is very much the same as that of Pyrrho. Here's a text where this becomes... He says, Monks, I I do not dispute with the world. Rather, it's the world that disputes with me. A proponent of the Dharma does not dispute with anyone. Of that which the wise in the world agree upon as not existing, I too say that it does not exist and of that which the wise in the world agree upon as existing, 
I too say that it exists. In other words, like Pyrrho and the ancient skeptics in Greece, he simply goes along with the opinion of the wise of the world at that time. Uh, that's good enough. And when he lived in India, in the 5th century BC, he took on board the views that the wisest people of that time had regarding the nature of the world, of reincarnation, the law of karma, uh, different realms of existence, the world being flat, all of that kind of stuff. He simply takes that on board as, as good enough. That's how our culture, how our society, you know, has come to understand these things, and that's adequate. That's enough for us to then pursue this philosophical way of life, this practice of Dharma. But if we find ourselves in a different culture, in a different time, where the wise of the world hold uh, a different view of things, then one goes along with that too. So one would assume that were a Buddha or a wise person of this tradition alive today, they would simply take on board the worldview of the natural sciences um, and so on and so forth um, as simply adequate as enough as, as fine for being able to live a flourishing philosophical life. So the idea that somehow Buddhism requires holding on to certain world views of ancient India um, is manifestly ridiculous from this point of view. The Buddha is not interested in affirming or denying such views. He simply accepts them as the result of where wisdom and understanding and research and knowledge has reached at that point in time. That's not, he's not concerned with that kind of knowledge at all. Instead, the Buddha famously says in one of the discourses in the middle length sayings, he says, for the most part, I dwell in emptiness. And it's here that we now begin to see how this quite well-known idea, emptiness, comes into play. But for the Buddha, emptiness is not got anything to do with the nature of reality. As Buddhism developed into a religion, into a doctrinal system, which it did, it turned emptiness into the ultimate truth. And this is how many Buddhist schools today would understand it, that uh, you have the conventional or the relative world, the relative truths, and you have an ultimate truth, an absolute truth, which is emptiness, or they often define it as the emptiness of inherent existence or self-existence. And that's what's really real. That's what's true. And everything else is only provisionally or conventionally true. In other words, they fall into this metaphysical habit of mind in which the world is split between what is really real and which is invisible and out of sight and not evident, emptiness, as opposed to what is visible and evident, which is the world of what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. Um, it's worth pointing out that nowhere in the Pali discourses does the Buddha use the word ultimate truth or conventional truth nor does he use any terms that are equivalent. He simply doesn't think that way. That's not what he's interested in, arriving at what is ultimately true and real. 
Instead, he says, I dwell in emptiness. Nowhere does he say that he gains insight or knowledge of emptiness. That's not the point. The point is, once again, as we saw earlier, dwelling. He dwells in emptiness. But what does that mean? Well, if you read Marginal 121, the shorter discourse on emptiness, you'll get the answer. I'm not going to go through the whole text, but basically, at the conclusion of this uh, discourse, um, he explains how dwelling in emptiness means dwelling in a non-reactive mind. A mind or a state of awareness that is empty of the asavas. We could translate that as the defilements, but actually it probably means something like projections, mental projection. So emptiness is dwelling in a space of awareness that is not um, governed or driven or infected by greed, hatred, confusion, egoism, pride. It's an, a space that is not conditioned by such things. And that's equivalent to nirvana. So dwelling in emptiness is precisely what, when we practice meditation here, for example, we seek to come to rest in. And this is again very close to the Greek ataraxia, the untroubledness, untroubled by greed, hatred, pride, coming to rest in that still and focused space. Nagarjuna, probably the most influential Buddhist philosopher, at least um, in the early part of the Christian era, um, says about emptiness the following. Buddhas say that emptiness is letting go of views. Believers in emptiness are incurable. <laughs> so in other words, for Nagarjuna, emptiness likewise is not some state, it's not some reality, uh, that's lying, as it were, beneath or at the heart of experience, that's out of sight, that's non-evident. But emptiness is essentially a letting go. And that's very close to the idea of dwelling in emptiness as the letting go of reactivity, of greed, hatred, and so on. In fact, it might be more helpful instead of using a noun, emptiness, that we thought in terms of emptying. In other words, it's a process. It's a way of life in which we're uh, constantly aware of these views, opinions, reactions, habits, attachments rising up, and in terms of the second of the four tasks, we let that go. We let them just rise and pass away. We don't identify or get caught up in them. And emptiness is just code for letting go. It's not a thing, it's not a state, it's a process, it's a, an attitude, it's a, a practice. Now such wisdom, therefore, which I'm calling here a secular wisdom, is not a know-that, but a know-how, a savoir-faire. Wisdom is very often presented to us as knowing directly, non-conceptually, the nature of emptiness or impermanence or suffering or the self or whatever. 
It's about a privileged kind of deep knowing or knowledge. That's often how we think of wisdom. And that's often how in Buddhism it's presented. It's knowing the nature of truth. Four truths, two truths. But it seems that from this kind of perspective, wisdom is not so much about what we know and how well we know it. It's more a kind of know-how. It's a skill to actually know how to do something. Um, Being skilled in certain um, disciplines, in certain meditations, in certain ethical situations. It's a skill, it's a kusala, a skill, a know-how. And this, I think, comes through quite clearly when we notice how often when the Buddha describes this practice, he uses as a metaphor the skill of artisans. Now, we even find this in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. He compares the person who is mindful of their breath their breathing to a skilled wood turner. He says, just as the meditator knows when they're breathing in a long breath that it's a long breath, breathing in a short breath that it's a short breath, he says that's just like a skilled wood turner or his apprentice. Remember, we had a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice. We endlessly get these examples. The meditator on the breath is like a lathe operator who knows when he or she makes a long turn, that it's a long turn, and a short turn, that it's a short turn. And again, this is a a metaphor, a picture. We've all got in our minds now someone working with a lathe. And just think about that for a moment. It's it's certainly a, a form of... Of, of knowing, but it's know-how. It's a, it's a kind of wisdom too. It's a wisdom of the body. It's a wisdom of how to utilize a technology in order to transform an element of the physical world. Also in the Satipatthana Sutta, he compares the meditator to a butcher, someone who's skilled at cutting up the carcass of an animal that he would have observed again on the roadsides of India of his day. He uses the example of a goldsmith, of a doctor, of an arrowsmith, endlessly. This is a wisdom that is a, a skill in knowing how to do something. So we can go back now to what I mentioned in my first talk, about shifting from Four Noble Truths to Four Noble Tasks. Noble Truth is basically the language of metaphysics. In other words, life is suffering, the origin of suffering is craving, and so on. These are metaphysical truth claims. They're claiming something to be true that we cannot know evidentially in terms of what we actually experience. Um, There might be parts of life that are actually terribly happy. But no, as Buddhists we have to believe everything is dukkha. And that craving is the origin of dukkha. Although, again, we we don't know that. We believe it, perhaps. But the point is not that these claims are true or false. It's got nothing to do with it. What matters is not whether these claims are true or whether these claims are false. We have to find a whole different mindset to deal with this practice. In other words, what matters is not uh, propositions or claims to describe the nature of reality, but to follow a course of behaviour that makes a difference in the quality 
of your life. In other words, what matters with dukkha, with suffering, is can you embrace it? Can you say yes to it? Can you um, fully understand the suffering of oneself and the other? That's what suffering calls you to do. And with craving or grasping or reactivity, the point is not to theorise as to how it causes suffering. The point is to let go of it. The point is not to get caught up in it. It's a practice. It's a task. With the third truth, it's not about (coughs) believing that the ending of craving is the ending of suffering. But it is to experience, to see for yourselves those moments in your life in which reactivity has stopped and to dwell in that stopping, in that emptiness, in that nirvana. It's a practice. And it doesn't matter whether the Eightfold Path leads to the ending of suffering or not. What matters is to actually cultivate that way of life moment to moment. Can you do that? Can you see the world this way? Can you live a life in which you become the sort of person you aspire to be? So this sceptical approach to life is also the foundation for an ethics of care, for an ethical way of life that's relinquished the need for any kind of metaphysical certainty and has embarked on a life in which we seek to respond to the conditions of the world in an ethical way that enables our own flourishing as persons and as communities. So the self is not to be negated as non-existent or at best a kind of illusory relative truth but it is to be cultivated and developed as an unfinished project as a work in progress as a narrative as a story that's being told and this is very beautifully captured in a verse from the Dhammapada which says, just as a farmer irrigates a field, just as an arrowsmith fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, so the wise person trains the self. Or you could translate that, tames the self. Now here too, we find the Buddha appealing to the know-how of working people, a farmer in a field, an arrowsmith making an arrow, a carpenter fashioning a piece of wood. What he admires here is those skills. And metaphorically, he's thereby comparing us, ourselves, to an unirrigated field, something barren, something in which nothing can grow. And the practice of the Dharma is about carving irrigation channels within our own minds. Irrigation channels that allow mindfulness, compassion, sympathetic joy, wisdom to flow more freely and thereby nourish the soil of our our existence such that we can quite literally flourish. It implies that we're like the disconnected bits of an arrow. The point, the shaft, the feathers, that somehow need to be integrated, brought together, fashioned, aligned, so that they can then be more directed in a focused way on our purpose and values. And likewise, we're like uncarved pieces of wood, which is again another 
image of finding Taoism. That we're kind of rough and unformed and the practice of the Dharma is about shaping, refining, forming the raw materials of our bodies, our feelings, our perceptions and so on, such that we change, we transform, we are trained, we are tamed, and we become what we aspire to be. So the ethics here, the ethical vision, the ethical practice is enabled by a non-metaphysical understanding of what we're doing, of the nature of the world and the nature of ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.